and um, I can see the uh, comments that are up on the screen otherwise, um, but I'm going to be paying most attention to the, uh, the questions that, uh, that are in the chat, in the Q&A part here, like we've been doing for weeks now, right, for maybe a couple months. So, um, so go ahead and throw those questions up there if you have them for me, and we will get to them. Uh, I'm always finding myself a little, um, a little breathless during these things um, because I want to get to as many questions and answers as I can, but I, I think I don't give myself enough time maybe to think as much as I could <laughs> in some of these. I was just, I wanted to comment on this because just before the show, I was watching a video from Mark Vicente uh, where he was talking about uh, narcissists, people with NPD, and whether they are aware of the fact that they are doing, you know, these Machiavellian schemes. Are narcissists, you know, are these people aware of what they're doing? And certainly some of them are, no question about it. But if you think about that question, it's an interesting one from this point of view. Here's another way you might think about cult members and predators and cult leaders and, and anybody who's getting into these headspaces that I thought, you know, that, that, that Mark's video sort of got me thinking about. Um, everyone is the hero of their own story. Everyone, everyone. It's, it, it's almost, you know, the, 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 the core idea of all of us is right, is I am right. And, and, we are, and I am going through my life and I am trying to navigate the circumstances of my life. And, I, and obviously we are the first person, you know, experiencers of, of our existence. And so everything we know about ourselves we paint in the best possible light, you know, and when other people correct us or criticize us or we have to change our behavior or whatever, you know, there's always that, uh, and, you know, and, and, and having to come to an awareness of, oh, I might think or feel that I am doing this thing or saying these things because this is the best possible thing that, that I could possibly be doing. And then you run into other people who go, oh, right, and have all these negative ideas or criticisms or want you to change. And you have to sort of think about that and go, oh, well, I got to look at it from somebody else's point of view. Right, and this is this is the whole empathy thing. This is what we call empathy: is can you do that, and how well can you do that? Because I think it's a spectrum sort of thing, right? And um, and then you have to decide to change your behavior accordingly if you care about you know uh, how you present to others or how you know you accomplish your goals or whatever. And you have to change. <laughs> Alex, I'll address that villain point there uh, along the line here. But I, because um, you're, you're not wrong, of course we get down on ourselves too. But I don't know that we really go all the way over to, you know, I'm the bad guy of my entire life, right? Because I think maybe, maybe that could be a case where that happens and really bad consequences happen as a result in terms of self-harm. Um, so maybe I should adjust my, you know, thing of not everybody, but, you know, I'll say I think the vast majority of people. Anyway, the point where I was going with that was how aware are we actually of when we are being the baddie or being somebody who is, you know, from other people's points of view, they might think because of what we're trying to do or say or whatever, lead our life, 
that we are just inherently awful, bad, horrible people from their perspective. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's objectively true. It just means some people think that, you know. And how often do we stop when we run into that and go, oh, wait a minute now, hang on. You know, and, 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 and like that's, that's exactly what my goal was, was to, was to be the Machiavellian bad guy here, right? <laughs> As you twirl your mustache and, you know, and you snidely whiplash kind of thing, right, I guess. Um, I, you know, I don't know if I'm being clear, but I think what I'm trying to say is we're not self-aware of, you know, all this, you know, harmful, bad, awful stuff that we can do, for, you know, inadvertently and unmistakenly in going through our lives, so why would we necessarily think that people who are predatory would be mentally any different as, than us in terms of in that regard? It's entirely possible they are navigating their life thinking and telling themselves in very, very clear terms that they are absolutely the hero of their story and everybody who is uh, challenging them or getting in their way or that they are abusing or harming they need to do that because these are people who are barriers to their their own progress their own spiritual financial life progress and and you know the from the predator's point of view everybody around them who isn't loyal to them or or going along with them is um needs to be stopped needs to be you know crushed <laughs> so anyway i don't know i'm just kind of talking out loud thinking about that but uh thinking out loud there but um oh fair enough love food kitchen i don't know you'd have to ask mark vicente about that as far as that documentary he did and, and your ideas about that um i i yeah i've never uh, never spoken with him about that um, anyway, it just got me thinking about this thing about, you know, our points of view and how even predators or narcissists have this, you know, this point of view. And they, and as Mark went over in the little video that he, that he made about this, you know, they live in this fantasy land. They live in an alternate reality. L. Ron Hubbard certainly did. Um, you know, Keith Renaire certainly did. And they... And they, they, they can project that reality out and get other people on board with that reality, and that's the cult. Another way of thinking about or describing a cult, right, is it's people caught up in the dream of the cult leader, <laughs> the, the alternate reality of the cult leader, and they make it their reality. Ugh. And it's and talk about Twilight Zone. Talk about living in another reality, another dimension, right? Pretty wild stuff. All right, so um, let's go ahead and start getting to some questions now, guys. I see them coming in, so let's uh, let's do this thing. Um, first off, let's see if I can pop this first one on the screen. There it is. I know you said okay, Bladen Kudik. And I'm just going to run these, run down these uh, from the top. I know you said you never heard a peep from anyone who got busted from Int to the RPF, but what about during auditing? I recall you saying you audit right next to each other and overhear everything. Great question. Thank you for asking me this because it helps me clarify this situation when I was on the uh, Scientology Sea Org RPF, the Rehabilitation Project Force, the sort of forced reindoctrination camp. Uh, prison, if you will, that you are put in by the Sea Org if you mess up. If you mess up in an extraordinary way, they 
imprison you. They put you into a place where you can't just walk out and leave and where you have to do hard physical labor for most of the day and um, engage in this sort of rehabilitation process of Scientology auditing, which is really indoctrination and, and hypnotism. Um, so it's a pretty gruesome process, and I did that process. I was put through that. It took me three years to get through it. Um, people from the international base, the gold base over in, uh, over in San Jacinto, were busted down to the RPF and had to do the same program I was doing, but they did it in Los Angeles where I was, that they didn't have an RPF at the base uh, after a certain point. They shut it down up there. And they shipped those guys down to the Pacifica base, the big blue buildings where I was. So I was on the RPF with about 100 and at the, at the biggest size when I first hit the RPF in around 2004 or 5, I think it was, um, there were about 100 and 115 people on the RPF, um, a lot of them, most of them from the int base. Uh, very few from PAC. There were only a handful, actually. Um, but there were people busted from up lines, they, as they say it, uh, and from other places in the world. The Los Angeles uh, PAC RPF was, was by far the largest RPF in the world. They had an RPF in Europe, and they had something maybe in Australia. I think they had one person I've heard on the RPF up in Canada. I don't even know how that's supposed to work. Because it's a team-up activity. You have to work with somebody else to get through it. I mean, in order to have a successful RPF, you have to have at least three people on the program. Uh, anyway, to, to do all the various functions with each other. Otherwise, you're just stuck there. So, um, so that's kind of what the RPF is. Now, to answer your question, the reason I didn't hear anything from the INT people about what life was like at the int base and their auditing is because they were all put in another room we had two different rooms for the co-auditing for the auditing that was happening um, there were the int base people who had been cleared for for int and they were over in their room and that was a closed door and then there was the non-int right the non-confidential you could say or lower level RPF auditing space and they had to set up the two different spaces so that's how they that's how they prevented us lower level people from hearing anything too nasty about what was going on at the int base but even if you had your ears open you did hear some things I didn't hear what was going on in those auditing sessions because the door was closed and they were very strict about that they didn't let you just wander in there um, but there were places and things that people would, there were procedures people would do with one another that were not auditing while they were on the RPF, like word clearing or false data stripping or other procedures. And when they would do those procedures, sometimes they would do them in other spaces where you could overhear them and they would say things like, you know how it was with all the cat fighting. I heard two women talking one time about the int base and, and, you know, doing this thing with each other, and uh, and that was kind. Of, and I was like, cat fighting, really? <laughs> like, what? What do you mean? Right? But you can't go in and ask him about it. So, or I would hear, you know, Jason, um, this guy Jason Bennick told me one time, you know, that there were confidential organizations in Scientology that there were not just confidential locations like the Gold Base. Nobody knew, you know, we we didn't know even know where it was located. But he alluded to the fact that there were confidential organizations, that there were whole 
orgs that I didn't know anything about and wasn't it was above my pay grade to know about them. That very much intrigued me as a Sea Org member. I was like, wait a minute, what? What are you talking about, right? Because we had this whole command channels chart and layout of how everything worked. And we were under, I was certainly under the impression that this was a transparent organization, right? And I was part of the upper level of the upper level of Scientology. So how could it, and there was stuff I wasn't being told about with whole orgs that were, that you know, organizations, what? So anyway, that, that's, a, that's a bit more detail about that situation. So I hope that answers that uh, question for you there, Bladen. Uh, it's, a, it's a good one. Um, okay, let's go to the next question here. Um, from Jehovah's Witnesses to declared apostate, when did Scientology start trafficking children? Did it start with Elron or David? Um, it most definitely started with L. Ron Hubbard, uh, with his messengers. That's the earliest example institutionally that I'm aware of, of Scientology using children to work for hours and hours on end as though they are adults, uh, holding Sea Org watches is what it was called, where they would spend eight to ten hours, I, as I understand it. Uh, holding a watch, meaning they were standing by for L. Ron Hubbard to tell them what to do. And he would give them directions and orders and tell them to go tell this person that or go pick, get this for me or send this to this person or whatever else he had them doing, which included um, cleaning him and cleaning his clothes and seeing to his personal needs and whatnot. Now, we have it on good authority from the very people who were doing this work, from uh, Mike Rinder to Janice uh, Gilm Grady to uh, Louis Roysdorf to others, that there was not sexual abuse of them as children by L. Ron Hubbard. Not one of them has ever made that claim. They've said very specifically that did not happen. Um, so I believe them. Uh, Hubbard was not a pedophile, at least not with them, at least according to everything we know. But he used them uh, as though they were adults to do anything and everything else he needed them to do. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, that's child trafficking uh, in international waters. He was doing this on his boat. Uh, this is back in the 60s, 67, 68, 69 time period when this started. Um, so that's my understanding of, of institutional child trafficking, labor trafficking in Scientology. And that carried on from that point forward because people have been uh, recruited into the Sea Org across the world, uh, from Canada to the United States to Europe to Australia, as minors, people have been recruited into the Sea Org and have been made to work uh, full adult schedules as young as 11 or 12 years old. Even younger, uh, if we go back to the ship days where crew members' own children were you know, considered crew or cadets and they were put to work. I worked with people in the pack base at Big Blue who grew up on the boat grew up on Hubbard's ship and, uh, and would talk about it. You know, we're even RPF'd as children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they used to have them do that kind of work, running around the ship doing pinholing, painting, scrubbing, cleaning, this, that, the other thing, basically working them um, and not treating them as the children that they were, except, of course, to, uh, you know, give some uh, slight attention, I suppose, to education. Uh, which, I, as I understand, it came and went. And, uh, the, and, and since the kids had a lot to do with determining whether they were going to you know, do their education or not, I don't know that they did a whole lot of it. 
Um, that's my understanding of it, and happy to be corrected if I'm wrong about that. But as I understand it, they got very substandard uh, educations uh, growing up in the Sea Org. Uh, certainly that was the case by the 1980s and 90s when it was institutionalized into the Sea Org with the PAC Ranch and the, the ATA, the, uh, the, the kids organization and, and where they raised the kids in the Sea Org. So this has been this whole trafficking labor thing for, for ever since Hubbard was around. And, uh, and as far as I know, I cannot say right now that that has stopped. Um, I do know for sure that they do not or they are discouraging recruiting minors these days. I have not heard of somebody being recruited since, the, you know, at 11 years old in many, many years. But that but here's the thing. They could be doing it right this second somewhere in Italy or somewhere in Russia or in Taiwan or in Australia or anywhere here in the United States. They could be doing it right now. Right. It's, it, it, is it an institutional practice? Not as much as it used to be, but it could still be happening very, very easily. Um, you know, just like they canceled the RPF, that whole thing I just told you about with the rehab program, that reindoctrination program, they don't officially do that anymore. But all the tools, all the things that they would do to people on that program, they still have all that. And they haven't canceled any of it. They'd still do the sex checking and the hard physical labor and all the other stuff. So in a way, canceling the RPF actually makes it worse because it, becomes, it becomes even more arbitrary, more, you know, whimsical, if you will, um, based on, you know, orders that some guy is just going to come up with. Uh, at least the RPF, you knew what you were getting into. You had a, you're going to do step one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then you're done. And it's going to take you years to get through these steps, but here they are, and this is what it is, right? When you're rolling your own, like the hole, like David Miscavige, when he created the hole, that was his invention. That nobody, that's not that what David Miscavige did in locking all those people up in those double-wide trailers and, and literally imprisoning them and having them doing group confessions and doing this and that and the other thing, all this, these group torture sessions. That was all his invention, and you never knew from one day to the next what was coming. And to me, that would actually be, having done the RPF, I would say that's actually worse than the RPF. So, um, so, it's, so yeah, so in some ways they've, you know, they've canceled the RPF, but is it really better? Probably not. Not really. Okay, hope that answers that question there about the kids. Um, let's see what else we've got here. Um, Oh, Apostate Alex is uh, chiming in in the comments there. There was someone who worked with me at London Org who grew up in the Cadet Org at St. Hill. The last kid graduated, and they closed it down in 2016, if I remember correctly. As I understand it, that's how things are at PAC also and at the Big Blue. But I, I can't be 100% sure. And the thing about Scientology is they will shut things down and they will stop stuff, but we have to acknowledge the fact that they, they can bring it back and sometimes do all the time. It's a very, it's a very un, inconsistent, it's a very inconsistent organization, Scientology is. I, I think you'll find that's true across the board with cults. Um, you know, they're very, again, they're very whimsical. It operates on the whim of its leaders, uh, very much so, or people with power and middle management who can make decisions that can be quite devastating in people's lives. All right, well, let's see what else we've got here. Young Matador asks, um, 
Hey, Chris, do you reckon the numerous legal challenges facing the Church of Scientology this year will put a big strain on the public face of the church? Will they ignore everything and keep hyping up the fake expansion? Okay, um, yes, to your second question, I believe that they will ignore everything and continue hyping the expansion because that's been the operating basis for decades now. And I don't see any reason why David Miscavige would change that. He always puts the glossy, you know, surface coat, the, you know, the lacquer on top of the bullshit and tries to make it shiny and, and very, uh, you know, uh, pleasing to the eye. But it's still bullshit. And, uh, and that's kind of how that is. As far as how they will, you know, reckon with these numerous legal challenges, I think, it's, it, I think it is putting a strain and it will continue to put a strain on Scientology, especially with high profile, the, the most high profile case, which is Leah's. Let me uh, get a drink here. Okay. Trying to slow down. All right. Um, an ad come up while I'm sitting here looking at the screen. All right. Skip that. Get back there. Okay. So I think Leah's lawsuit is the big high profile one that is absolutely driving them mad and is costing them, uh, you know, some, some good money. Um, in having to fight, you know, all the different things that they're fighting, these big, huge, you know, briefings and, and submissions to the court and stuff. That's that's thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of, uh, of investment for the church. And, of course, you know, Miscavige is micromanaging these things and watching them, uh, you know, every little comment and detail. He, he, he does that. Um, you know, Mike talks about that. We know how Miscavige... Uh, in fact, that's something I overheard on the rpf one day uh was somebody was actually talking about the fact that miscavige uh hobby horses legal is how he put it hobby horsing is a sign is an internal scientology term for um you know paying way too much attention really focusing micromanaging a thing would be hobby horsing it and, uh, and this guy was talking about how Miscavige would hobby horse on legal, on anything having to do with legal issues or court cases. Um, so I knew about that way back when I was still in Scientology. I'd heard that idea, and Mike confirmed it after leaving Scientology. And we see this. We see this in the way the lawyers talk in the cases and things like that. But as far as... Um, um, the strain on the public face, it's already there. See, it's been there, and that's not going to change. That's the, the, the legal, the, the public face of Scientology is mainly represented in major media, excuse me, by these legal cases, especially Leah's. That's the one that's, I keep saying that because her case is the one that keeps being talked about in major media, not just celebrity media. We see Newsweek and CNBC and CNN reporting on Leah's lawsuit every step of the way and that's that's really good i mean in terms of public awareness and um so when are people aware of scientology in the big wide public well when they see it on the major media as being sued by you know leah who most people tons and tons not most people but certainly millions and millions of people have seen scientology in the aftermath and they connect those dots right away you know so um, so that's not going to – so nothing's really – in terms of the public face of Scientology, I guess what I'm trying to say is 
that's not going to change. Scientology is not going to do some big, broad media campaign this year that's going to change all that and, and turn the tide of public favor towards them. Now, could things happen that could make that happen? Absolutely. You know, could the, could the Church of Scientology have an about face because of martyrs or because of some other public activity? Absolutely it could, right? Or something else could happen that we don't know about. So, um, so predictions, you know, in terms of, well, what's going to happen? Well, based on the data we have right now, I don't think we're going to see any change in the toxic imaging of Scientology by the broad public. I don't think we're going to see any change in how Miscavige deals with Scientologists internally by continuing to put a glossy coat on the bullshit and keep them smiling and keep talking about the expansion. If there's one thing Scientology teaches us, it is that a body of people can be convinced that a incredibly bad thing is actually a thriving, successful operation that is changing the world. That can happen in this world. People can be made to think that way through manipulation and deception and deceit and codependency and euphoria, awe induction and all the other things that we talk about and have been talking about for years. Scientology proves to us that that can happen. It happens in other places, too. I'm not, you know, you figure out where. <laughs> Every time I give examples, half of y'all want to kill me. So you figure it out. But it happens all over the place all the time. And, um, you know, and that's what Scientology teaches us with this stuff. So I, that's why I think it's uh, so fascinating and useful to look at or, or pay attention to. Um, okay, let's see what else we got here. Going All right. Again, just taking these from the top. Anthony Spurgeon. Hey, Chris, I have a fantasy where someone gets elected president who is openly secular. Yeah, that's a fantasy, all right. <laughs> agnostic, atheist, agnostic, etc. Will it happen in our lifetimes? Uh, no, I don't think it will. Um, according to, okay, actually, let's. Let me check something here real fast. Since we're since we're I'm, I'm on, uh, got my browser here. Um, percentage of U.S. population um, claiming religious. Let's see, what we got here religious landscape study, Pew Research Center. Uh, 70.6% of people in the United States identify as Christian. 25% of them, 25.4%, uh, as evangelical Protestant, uh, the largest sub-percentage of Christians are evangelical Protestant Christians. The next uh, largest percentage of Christians in the United States is 20% of uh, this a hundred percent is Catholic. So, yeah. Okay, so we've got atheists and agnostics represent seven percent of the population. Unaffiliated represents 22 percent, but atheist agnostics specifically only seven percent. So, 
the United States bases its morality and a lot of its moral foundational concepts on Christian principles. And a great many people in the United States are absolutely convinced that morality comes from the Bible, comes from supernatural belief, comes from God. That is the, literally the source of morality as far as they are concerned. So good and bad, questions of good and bad and right and wrong are always uh, decided by biblical standards or their Christian faith or this kind of thing. And they therefore believe, and I've seen them express this, I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you what I've seen, they, that, that, they'll, that they then project that if you do not share these values, if you are not on board with how they think about good and bad and right and wrong, then you are a lost soul or you are to some degree, you know, horribly um, miseducated or, or misaligned or you are unethical. You cannot be a good person if you do not hold these beliefs, in other words. That's where I was trying to get, right? You're, you're just not. You're just not a good person. You can't even be a good person. Or I can't know as a believer what you're going to do. You're an uncertain element to me. You're an unpredictable element. I don't know, Mr. Atheist presidential candidate, whether I can trust you or not, because what do you base you know, your morals and principles and decision-making on? If it's not the Bible, I can't trust you. If, it's, if you don't believe in God, you have no basis for good or bad and right and wrong, and so I can't trust you, right? This, is, this would be the most you know, reasonable, rational way of expressing what I've heard this, uh, this sentiment expressed. And this is a majority of Americans. This isn't a minority. This isn't a splinter group or a, or a you know, very loud minority. This is the majority of Americans. So, um, so seeing it that way, I don't think we're going to see an atheist or agnostic president uh, simply because of that sort of problem, much less policy issues and all the rest. Um, we happy to be wrong about that, of course. I'd love to see an atheist <laughs> president. <laughs> and I happen to think, by the way, that there are a great many politicians who may play at being Christian in order to satisfy this base of people, this majority of, of voters, especially at the federal national level. I think you find a number of politicians who are just play-acting at their religiosity, and they really don't have any religious faith or belief or, or practice much of anything, um, but they have to, you know, sort of put on a show. I think we see an awful, you know, a, a lot of that. So that's a thing. Um, okay, from Jehovah's Witnesses to declared apostate, do staff members work seven days a week, or do they have two days off? Okay, well, it depends on what kind of schedule they're on. In Scientology, you have three levels of commitment. Let's review this real fast. You have public, you have staff, and then you have the Sea Org. And, um, and the public, of course, are just paying for their services and doing their stuff. They're on a regular schedule of maybe you know, 10, 15 hours a week. They go into the church and they do their, their services. Um, sometimes they'll go full-time for periods of time or they'll take a vacation and they'll go do their services or whatever. But that's, they're normally just you know, doing it on a part-time basis. Staff members work day hours, which is 9 to 6, Monday through Friday, or they work foundation hours, which is Monday through Friday, 7 to 10, and Saturday and Sunday, 9 to 6. So, or 9 to 10, depending on the org. Sometimes they're open weekend nights as well. So the, there's a day schedule and a foundation schedule for the staff members. Um, some organizations go full shift 
and they only have, you know, day and foundation. But you'll tend to find that if they are regular people who have jobs and houses and stuff like that, which staff members are, then they um, will tend to be on a one or the other kind of schedule, not both. Very few people can have the stamina to work as a staff member at a city-level church like Denver or Milano or New York or something, um, you know, full, full, full-time like that. Sea Org members are full, full, full-time. They're 24-7. They are working seven days a week, uh, basically on call 24 hours a day, and their work schedule tends to be something on the order of 8.30 in the morning or 8 o'clock in the morning until, you know, midnight, 1.00 you know, in the morning, something like that. Their schedule time will sometimes be like 8.30 to 11, 8.30 to 11.30 maybe, something like that will be the posted schedule, but they violate it all the time. They get woken up in the middle of the night or they, may, they get made to stay late and stuff like that constantly. It's a constant problem. So that's kind of the scheduling of the different levels of Scientology and, and all, the, all the ways that exists. So there you go. All right, see what else we got here. Joe DiCeppo, do you think the times when the reality or other people's reality broke through to LRH were the times he appeared to be depressed, alcoholic, and reclusive? Now, that's an interesting question. Um, I think that's entirely possible that people could have um, triggered him in some fashion or he could have experienced some kind of, uh, you know, oh my God, and I'm the baddie kind of thing. But I don't think that's what his depressions actually were about. I think his depressions and anxieties were his own self-loathing. He, he carried around an awful lot of that. Um, we know that from his personal writings. But we also know he had this whole self-aggrandizement thing. And if you want to talk about this kind of bipolar, like bang, bang, bang between these two poles of I am the best and the greatest and the most amazing person who has ever lived and I suck and I'm horrible and I'm awful, right? Hubbard would bounce between these two things and he would use drugs and alcohol to cope with this um, on top of other stuff. Remember, this is, you know, Hubbard in 1940s, 50s, you know, there's no uh, psychotropics for him to take. There's no internet or WebMD for him to go to. So, you know, he was just uh, rolling with it. And um, I think that I think that other people's reality broke through to LRH when it was sort of forced upon him. And I'll give you an example. Um, in the 1960s, L. Ron Hubbard gave a like two or three day interview to a magazine that was either like Town and Country or Better Homes and Gardens or some some fairly, you know, known and, and at the time I think a more prominent media outlet than not news media, but sort of a, you know, entertainment, you know, informational, educational venue kind of thing. Um, and I think Hubbard was looking, if I remember this right, it was one of those kind of venues, but it was certainly a major publication. There was some kind of major news story that was going to happen, but I think it was around 63 or 64, and Hubbard had prepped for it, and he'd gotten, you know, the, the, opened the St. Hill Manor and, you know, and, and invited them and all that. And then the news story came out, and he was lambasted. He, you know, it was Scientology was, uh, was, was ridiculed, and the whole thing was looked upon as, you know, the ridiculous cult that it is. I mean, that is what it is. 
And that reality came kind of crashing in on Hubbard, right? And he was not happy about that. And he went into a major funk. And I believe uh, from what I have heard or, or remember of this, that he, it changed him um, in terms of how he, he, he'd already been critical and conspiratorial about news media and about the FBI and various government agencies. He was always kind of spinning various narratives to, you know, have his, to have him be the hero and Scientology be the hero when it came to fighting against these groups. But after this story, he changed. And that's, Kind of after that point is when you see him start talking about bringing in private investigators and setting up this kind of apparatus within Scientology of justice and investigation and kind of creating this, this, this sort of faux spy organization, this intelligence organization, which he eventually built up to where it wasn't a faux intelligence organization at all. It was a very real intelligence organization. It still exists. It's called the Office of Special Affairs. Um, but that all started back in this mid-60s time period, at least as far as I can tell from all the reading and, and study I've done of this. So, um, so in terms of other people's reality breaking into Hubbard and causing him you know, to become depressed, alcoholic, and reclusive, yeah, absolutely. That would be a, a probably the best example I could think of, of you know, in a, even in a long term, uh, really putting Hubbard into a different frame of mind about things. Very paranoid. I uh, hope all that makes sense. Let's move on here. Um, yes, and make sure those questions go under the, uh, the question thing there, guys, as uh, people are mentioning. Um, okay, from Jehovah's Witnesses to declared apostate. How are we doing for... Oh, my God, we're already 40 minutes into this. Can't believe how fast time flies doing these things. Uh, when did child... Oh, yeah, we already answered that one. Okay, good. So... Um, Fabian, okay. Uh, what is your opinion of the TikTok crew? I have already talked about this. This question is already answered on Friday night. I said what I have to say about this. I don't have anything else to say about it. Check out my show on Friday night. I did a whole monologue about it. And that's all I have to say about it. And that's it. Yeah. All right. Moving on. Um, Fabian, again, with the change situation, will you consider do something with Mike Rinder or some other former SPTV guys? A of course, absolutely. I'm always open to collaborations. I'm not a shut down silo of, you know, invulnerability. And I, I mean, I do interviews every week with people on my podcast, my Speaking of Cults podcast. The fantastic, amazing podcast you guys should be listening to every week to learn all about cult experience. That's what that podcast is for, and cult recovery especially. Um, but we go over all kinds of stuff. This, this week, for example, the whole thing on trauma and trauma recovery and awareness. Pretty hardcore episode, too, if you listen to it. Uh, the woman I had on this week was, uh, had a devastating story from her college experience. But um, anyway, no, I have absolutely nothing on uh, doing something with Mike uh, or, or others. Um, look, I wanna, I'm just going to say this, and then I'm going to move right on, okay? 
there is no reason whatsoever that I would ever consider doing work with someone who has publicly ridiculed, insulted, and trashed me. When you somebody does that, I'm done. I think you would be too. I don't see any reason whatsoever to continue to engage with anyone who would do that to me. So that's is so if you're wondering who would I collaborate with, anybody who hasn't done that. And of course, if I thought the collaboration was something that was useful or important to my work and what I'm trying to do on my channel, because I don't exist to forward other people's channels. I exist for my work and what I'm trying to do here, which is called awareness and education and recovery. That's what this channel's about. And, uh, you know, that's it. That's, that's all I have to say about that. And I think that's pretty clear. Okay. Let's move on. Um, oh, great question. Okay, Fabian asks, how is the situation with cults in the USA in 2023-24? Is it increasing or decreasing? How do you see the development? Okay, that's a great question. Let me take a drink while I think about it. Um... I have said, and I will continue to say, that we have never been in a place where there is more awareness of cultic manipulation and deception than we are now in our current society, in our current place and time. We have uh, this whole subgenre that has been developed out of this, of the true crime podcasts and documentaries and, and video work um, that is dedicated to cults and cultic crime and cultic abuse. That's a thing that has now become part of the zeitgeist, if you will. Part of our cultural time is an awareness of cults. As a result of that, as in any other thing where you see a raised awareness of something, it appears there is suddenly a proliferation of this thing because people are now more aware of it. Right? It's like, you know... Um, playing punch buggy, you know, suddenly you're aware of all the Volkswagens out on the road, right? Because you see them everywhere and you get punched. Uh, if you're not paying attention, well, they're all still out there in the same numbers that they always have been, but it's just our awareness of them is what changes. And I think this is what's happened with cults is you see more media uh, stories, you see more testimonials, you see more ex-member memo memoirs and videos and documentaries. And because of this increased awareness and this increased proliferation of content, we get the idea that there's more of this going on now than ever before. And that's not the case. People haven't substantially or significantly changed psychologically or culturally in thousands of years. Um, how we develop our culture, the technology and tools of our cultures have changed, and that has changed us to a degree but the basic needs, the emotional needs, the basic physiological needs of human beings, same, 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 right? If we go all the way back to ancient Egypt, Babylonia, Assyria, whatever, you know, we can go back 20, 30,000 years to, you know, civilized man. And in that time, we're basically the same physical makeup and mental makeup to a great degree. Um, 
So all the same shit we've been doing now is all the same shit we've been doing the whole time, right? But uh, that's always informed or changed or modified by the culture and the bigger picture of things, right? I'm sure there were tons of cults, in other words. What I'm saying is I'm sure in the ancient Rome there were tons of destructive cults formed up around individuals. But, you know, were they uh, international in scope? Of course not. Right? They were local in scope, but the same behavior was happening. The same degrees of codependency were induced. The same kinds of gaslighting were used. The same kind of motivated reasoning and cognitive dissonance was at work. You know, all that stuff. Same, same, same. So, um, but people had different words for it. They had different expressions or ideas of it. They, in other words, they framed it differently. They thought about it differently. And uh, they thought about supernatural beliefs in a very, very different way at different times. So that would also inform what's destructive and what's constructive and all of that. But the tools of manipulation have always been the tools of manipulation. So the way I see it is I see that this activity is something that is just part of human behavior. Every culture, every group, every circumstance has the potential of turning into something awful and culty, anything at all. Um, and, it, and, and sometimes they do. And so that's kind of how I see it, is I see it that, that I think this increased awareness of what's going on right now is a net positive for us. I think it's a hugely, wonderfully good thing. Um, because now we have the ability to regulate certain parts of this behavior legally, which we haven't necessarily had in the past. And, uh, and that's what this increased awareness gives us. And it also arms people up so that they are not necessarily as easily deceived. But quite honestly, it's way too easy for us to pat ourselves on the back about that. Because the fact of the matter is that me and you and thee and she and everybody else is entirely capable of being fooled and is entirely capable of taking shit way too far, way too fast, anytime. Any of us can have that happen at any time. Um, so it's only our critical thinking and our emotional intelligence that's going to prevent us from, from doing that. And uh, unfortunately, in the moment of euphoria and awe and and, uh, you know, the, all those wonderful chemicals that are flooding your brain. And that moment is when it is the hardest to be a good critical thinker and to keep your emotional intelligence, you know, on, uh, turned on. It's the, the and that's, that's the, that's the, the struggle. Okay. Let's carry on here. Um, Okay, here's a great question about Leah. Uh, is Leah still being followed and harassed? Does she have a restraining order against the PIs? I'm not aware of restraining orders that Leah has filed against any private investigators. I've not seen or heard about that that, that I know of. Um, but yes, Leah is definitely still being harassed. Absolutely. She's been making court filings on a weekly basis, practically, um, you know, in the court case that we have been covering every week if you watch the show that tony and i do every week we break this down every week what the progress is on her case and scientology has not stopped its harassment of her in any way uh, on social media and in real life and she has given specific examples over and over again to the court 
and this is being sorted out. This is what this case is all about. And so it's going to take a long time to sort it out. But Scientology is not stopping their harassment in the meantime. Leah is trying to get the court to order them to stop, but that is still in the process of being worked, uh, worked over uh, in the case. Okay. Next question. Hey, this is from Jehovah's Witnesses Declared. You got a lot of questions. This is great. Uh, do Scientology orgs have facial recognition in their surveillance cameras? Yes, they do, um, especially at the PAC base at Big Blue. Um, I'm, I'm certain of it. They have a very advanced computer system at Big Blue. Um, they've paid uh, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars. I told the whole story um, uh, some time ago about the fact that a rape occurred uh, in the parking lot of Los Angeles org in 1990. Yeah, I think it was late 1995 when that happened. And um, there had been a sort of, you know, lackadaisical, not really with it security force on the base. And they had security cameras all over the place, but they didn't have high tech. It was sort of low res, black and white cameras. They literally could not see what was happening in the parking lot. There were cameras, but they were not of a resolution that, that gave them the ability to, to make out the details that a Scientologist student was being assaulted in her car in the parking lot. And so um, they did this whole huge, I mean, obviously this was a incredible problem and what they called a flap. Uh, you know, everybody was freaking out. They did a whole reorganization of security, um, and they did a massive investment in security cameras. And uh, I thought I heard a phone sound. Anyway, um, oh, let's do that. There we go. Yes, I would like to unpair that. <laughs> Good. My phone was paired with the board, I think. Okay, anyway. Um, so in this whole reorganization, they put these super-duper cameras uh, all over the base. Everybody got ID cards with magnetic, you know, card readers and door locks and all this crap. Security was beefed up. And they put cameras up on top of the where the Scientology sign is and the cross there are cameras up there that can see out and read a license plate like a mile or two out. They are very, very powerful. Um, so that's what I can tell you about the security measures uh, in Los Angeles. They take it very seriously. I, and people need to appreciate that who are out you know, and about in those areas right now doing stuff. Your pictures are being taken, and they are finding out who you are, and they are assembling information about you. You need to know that because uh, that's what Scientology does. And they are very fumble-bumble as an organization. They, they, you know, issue foot-bullet PR statements that, that are just ridiculous. They do ridiculous things. They say ridiculous things. But the Office of Special Affairs is an intelligence operation, as I was going over, that's been in existence since the 1960s and they take themselves very seriously and the work that they can do against individuals when it comes to stalking harassment and ruining people's lives is not um, is not a joke and this uh, this equipment and the stuff that they have they, they 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 use this stuff they don't just buy it and leave it in boxes in a in a storage closet 
Uh, okay, so there's that. Um, Fabian, again, what do you think about writing a cynical book, How to Run a Cult, with your condensed knowledge? I was actually thinking about doing exactly that, and then the How to Become a Cult Leader documentary series came out on Netflix, and I was like, ah, they took my idea, right? Uh, so that's kind of already been done a little bit. Um, anyway, I have actually given serious thought to laying out a book and doing it that way. Um, but I also didn't want to give anybody, I, I was also hesitant about it kind of seriously because I didn't want to put a book out there that somebody could read and then go, oh, here's how to do it. Here's the guide, right? <laughs> because not all cult leaders go study how to do it, but some do. Jim Jones did, uh, and so did Keith Rainier uh, and others. They, they do study. They look at what other cult leaders do. But not, not all of them do, but some of them do. All right. Let's carry on here. Bladen Kudik again. Can you talk us through your ethics interview in detail when you were found to be posting critically about Scientology on the bunker and ex-Scientology boards? Um, I mean, I kind of have. Yeah, okay. Um in 2013, when it was found out that I had been posting anonymously online under assumed names, critical statements about Scientology and its operations, I had not yet been found out. I had not yet been um, declared a suppressive. They figured out who I was based on what I was writing. And, they, and two Sea Org members came out to Minnesota, where I was located at the time. I, as an ex-Sea Org member, I was out there in Minnesota trying to, make a, trying to make my life go. And they flew out there just for me. And they sat me down, met with me at the org. I didn't know they were coming. It was a, it was a, it was a surprise, right? They, uh, they kind of bombed me. And um, I walk in. There they are. I'm like, oh, shit, I thought I was meeting with one person. And then I'm meeting with these two from Los Angeles. I was like, what the hell? And um, basically, I did, have, I did not have an ethics interview in terms of sitting me down, putting me on the e-meter, asking me questions. It wasn't that kind of interview. I went in there fully, you know, like, I'm going to ask you people some questions, right? Like, I was pissed. And they weren't having any of it. And, uh, and the OSA person who came out, her name was Pam Bowen. I think she's dead now. And there is no loss to the world at all. She was, uh, this woman had shark eyes. There was nothing human in her. Um, man, she was just a piece of work. She um, turned every statement I made against me, every single thing. She did not acknowledge anything that the church did as bad or wrong would not even go there would not even acknowledge my questions or answer them everything was turned on me that i was the one to blame for any hostile or antagonistic thoughts or feelings i had because of my own overts my own sins i was an i was a what they called an overt product of the rpf right i'd done that whole prison program i spent three years of my life right confessing all my sins and this bitch is sitting there telling me pardon my French, right, that that whole thing wasn't done right, and that's why I was now, you know, out of Scientology or why I was, why I was so pissed off about Scientology is it was all on me, see. And uh, I, anyway, I, needless to say, I wasn't having any of that. 
I was done with that whole attitude and point of view. They were not going to introvert me at this point. But they did have leverage over me because of the, the, the woman that I was in love with um, and the fact that I wanted to be with her. And she was a Scientology staff member in Minnesota. So using that leverage, they strong-armed me into agreeing to do the A to E steps, uh, which are the steps you do uh, if you are declared a suppressive person in Scientology. And uh, this other guy, Lon Kleffler, the senior INR PAC is his post title, if that means anything, um, the senior um, director of inspections and reports for the Pacific Base is the whole post, the whole post title. And yes, the Sea Org takes themselves way too seriously when it comes to their job titles. Anyway, um, so yeah, so he was the one who sat me down and said, okay, here's what we're going to do, and, and you're going to do these. And I agreed to do them because it was the only way I could maintain or thought that I could maintain those relationships that I wanted to, to keep. And that didn't end up working out, and they declared me anyway, and I, you know, I was like, I'm out of here. So that's kind of um, the, 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 the bare bones uh, breakdown of what happened there, Bladen. All right, let's see what we got here in terms of uh, questions. I think we have a few more. Okay, we do. Let me see if I can uh, go into speed mode here to get these last ones uh, caught up before we wrap up here. Um, does Tom Cruise know about the trafficking situation in Scientology? Yes and no. He does know about it, but he doesn't think about it that way any more than I would have thought about it that way as a Scientologist. It's... It's not that you don't have the data. It's what you do with it and how you frame it, how you, you know, how you put it together and what story you're telling yourself about that data. That's how we live our lives. That's how we perceive and understand the world is we receive the information, but then we do this whole song and dance with it to make it fit into the narrative of our life. Cult members do this too, just like you and I do. But what they do is they have to frame everything in the vision of or the reality of the cult and the cult leader. And so that's why it's very, very weird when you're talking to them because they'll acknowledge that this is a, you know, yes, this is a thing, but then they'll tell you this is not a pack of cards. It is, um, you know, a wondrous gift from, uh, you know, from the avatar uh, Zenu, right? Ah, and we must worship it. And you're like, dude, it's a pack of cards. No, don't you understand? You know, it's like that kind of weird alternate reality thing. That applies to this question too. Cruz doesn't look at Sea Org members who are being forced to labor for him as being trafficked. He thinks they are dedicated, loyal, hardworking people who are happy to do this work for him for no pay and barely any food. He thinks they're happy to do that because that's just the kind of hardcore, dedicated Thetans they are. So he doesn't see it as trafficking. But it is. And that's, that's the delusional mindset of a cult member. They can reframe anything to make it make sense within their narrow view of the world. And if it doesn't make sense and they can't make it make sense, it doesn't exist. It simply ceases to exist. And that's why they will do disconnection, right? Because they don't want, 
the criticism or the problems or the issues. They would rather that family member or friend or connection just doesn't exist. Right? I've seen, I've literally seen grown ass Scientologists right in front of me. Don't tell me. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Right? Put their hands over their ears. Thought I was dealing with a four-year-old. Couldn't believe it. This was the father of the woman I was out there for, by the way. Right? Yeah. So there you go. All right. Let's see what else we got here. Uh, how has being on YouTube changed you? And uh, trading says, uh, okay, wow. How has it? Oh, my God. This would take me an, uh, uh, oh, wait, 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 wait. Where'd it go? There it is. Sorry about that. Okay. Um, significantly, uh, I think overall for the better in many, many ways, um, growing a thicker skin, dealing with, you know, challenges and hostilities and stuff like that. It tests you, you know, you get your character and your integrity tested in lots and lots of different ways. Um, you know, you're, you're offered po- uh, po- possibilities or, or advertisers or, or collaborations or, you know, work or things that would forward what you're trying to do. Or, sorry, that would get you more viewers but wouldn't necessarily forward what you're trying to do. <laughs> Let me be clear. Um, and, you know, and you got choices you got to make about stuff like that, you know. And I've, I feel I've, I've, uh, I've dealt with those the way I've dealt with those, um, you know, stuff like that. Um, it's made me more aware of, and I, and and some might, you know, um, well, it just made me more aware of of wildly different points of view in the world, and those that and the wide spectrum of a variety of ideas about things. It's been a real eye opener as far as that goes, um, and yeah, and, you know, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, right? Context is everything. So sometimes there's good examples of that. Sometimes there's not so great examples. But, but there's always, there's always learning to do here. You know, at least as far as how I approach this stuff and I'm trying to do this. Um, I feel that um, I wanted to say this. I think. Um, I feel it's also given me more of an appreciation for people. I guess that variety of experience and everything too, right? Or that, you know, of of viewpoints and stuff. I guess it gives me a little bit more appreciation for people. Sometimes not in the moment. I'll admit it, right? Absolutely. um, You know, sometimes it's like, but then, you know, then you think about it. Then you go, ah, right now, no, that that was a good point. You know, Uh, that can happen. Doesn't always happen, but it can happen. Sometimes people think they're making good points and they're not. That happens too. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, you know, so sometimes you'll have people who will be like on your case about stuff and you're just like, yeah, no, not, not, not my circus, not my monkey's not going to do that, right? Or not, not thinking that way or don't want to. Um, so, it, so it just, you know, it's, it's, it's always a surprise. It's always interesting. And, uh, and I like that. I like that. That's why I like going live. That's why I like interacting with people live and doing this work. Um, I'm always surprised by, by how people um, see things, you know? It can be really, it can be really interesting and, and educational, like I said, and, and viewpoint broadening. Okay, I think I've 
made that point. All right, here we go. Um, Fabian, uh, yeah, we're going over, but let's, you know, screw it. Why not? Um, please elaborate on LRH's self-loathing. I would invite you to check out um, the Wikipedia page or the appendix of my book, Scientology A to Zenu, right here, where I have reprinted in full L. Ron Hubbard's affirmations. Oh, in fact, I've got them right here. So, let's see what we've got in here. Oh, well, here they are right here. Um, now, let's see if I can find... Oh, boy. Um, boy, some of these get really a little racy. I don't know if I want to read some of them. Basically, I think my point with this in terms of answering your question and looking through these is Hubbard is writing here page after page after page after page of things that he is telling himself in order to give himself a boost, a sort of mental psychological boost. And he does this in, uh, he recorded these, as I understand it, on, on tapes and played them back to himself while he was sleeping or going to sleep or putting himself into a trance. This is kind of self-hypnosis stuff. And um, if you read through all of these, what you come away with is that he's writing all of these things in order to counter how he really feels about them. Um, for example, he writes here over and over again, I must be, oh yeah, by eliminating certain fears by hypnosis, this is his writing, by eliminating certain fears by hypnosis, curing my rheumatism and laying off hormones, I hope to restore my former libido. I must, exclamation point, by hypnosis, I must be convinced as follows. A, I can write. I need not think commercially about writing. B, my mind is still brilliant. My memory unaffected by drugs or experience. C, that masturbation was no sin or crime and did not injure me. That no sexual practice has ever dulled me. D, that things sexual thrill me. That I am now returned to the same feelings I had at 16 about sex where excitement is concerned. That naked women and pornography excite me greatly. That Sarah, his current wife at the time, excites me greatly and gives me much pleasure. And this is, I'm, I've just read to you A through D. This goes on to... Oh boy, there's, there's, uh, it goes past the alphabet and beyond. Um, goes up to L1. So they go all through A through Z and then A1 through L1. Um, lots of things he's trying to convince himself of because he doesn't like himself and he's not doing well in life and he's got a lot of problems with other people. And he lays them out over and over and over again in these affirmations. And you can see when you put it all together in this picture, you read through all these pages of stuff and you're like, Jesus Christ, this guy really had a problem with himself. And a number of fields and areas and, and, and parts of his life, he was a mess. 
He was a mess physically, sexually, psychologically, financially. It's all in here. So that's where I think you can like, really get all the details of it. But I hope what I just read gives a little tiny glimpse into what I was talking about with that. Uh, I call it self-loathing. I mean, you know, maybe you call it something else, but I know for a fact, and John Atak and I have had conversations about this where he talked about, um, you know, talking with people who had had direct experience with Hubbard on this. So, you know, we were talking third hand, but we had firsthand accounts of people who had been in the room with Hubbard drinking himself into a stupor and taking drugs and crying and just, and just hating on himself. Like free, like this would happen over and over again. Um, over the years so that's you know that's kind of what we what we've got on that oh obg foster okay here's a great question um i appreciate your focus on critical thinking but i would like to see deep dives especially misunderstood concepts like cognitive dissonance or authoritarianism will we see that in 2024 uh, sure i i I'm a little surprised because I thought I have done deep dives on these things in the past, but I will be more than happy to continue doing that. I'm, that's, that's my plan uh, because we're going to be talking, uh, are talking about trauma and recovery and cult recovery and the mechanisms of that. And that goes way beyond critical thinking. I haven't actually done a critical thinking video in quite some time compared to the amount of time I've spent talking about this stuff. So, yeah, there will definitely be more of that. Absolutely. Um, Okay, let's see what else we got here. <laughs> Joe, <laughs> great question. Uh, do you by any chance do consultations or perhaps have a book out? Well, as a matter of fact, I do uh, have this book out. And as a matter of fact, I do do consultations. And if you are somebody who would like to talk to me one-on-one, -on -one, uh, I can help with coercive control, post-cult situations. I can help with people who are friends or family. You got somebody you don't know what to do with. You don't know how to talk to them. They, you know, the situation's kind of gone south. Maybe I can help. Um, and, uh, you know, post-cult recovery, post-domestic uh, violence recovery or whatever, I can help with that. I have um, guided, helped, educated people. I'm not a consult. I'm not a therapist, rather. I do not do psychological counseling or therapy. Um, but I do help people. And, uh, and so far, it's uh, worked out really well. I've, I've, I've really been able to, to assist some people. Um, and that's what I can say about that. You can contact me through my website, mncriticalthinking.com, or uh, through the email address listed in the description below. All right. Um, <laughs> Chris Wood asks, do you own or wear sleeveless shirts? Um, let's see if that's going to, there it is. Yes. Uh, no. I do own a two sleeve. I own a tank top and a sleeveless shirt, and I only wear them around the house. You will never, ever, ever see me in them. <laughs> Nor do you want to. Um, and no, I do not. Chris uh, would also ask, do you own any leather pants? Uh, I do not. I do not own leather pants. I own a leather jacket. Um, it's actually the oldest thing I own. I got it all the way back in Santa Barbara when I was a staff member there. It's the one thing I've had longer than anything else in my life. Anyway, let's move on here. I'm trying to catch up. Young Matador is a British person. I've been reading a lot recently about the slavery abolitionist John Brown. Just curious, do you think violent action is acceptable to bring about change for the good of humanity? 
Um, I think that violent action is an inevitable result of a lack of communication and understanding between people that results in eventual change. I think violence is inevitable because people do not know how to talk to each other. And their emotional outrages and moral outrages become so great and so righteous and they become so self-righteous about them that they cannot interact uh, you know, uh, in a civil way. And that's when violence is called for. Um, now, included in that description is, uh, in that, you know, in what I'm saying there, is the circumstance where you have a Hitler or, um, you know, a Mussolini or a madman who becomes uh, in control. And when that happens, of course, violence is often necessary in order to remove them from their perch because they're not going to come down any other way. These are people who do not believe in peaceful transfers of power. These are old school, you know, authoritarian, uh, you know, dictatorial type rulers. And, and this is still very prevalent in the world today. So we have, uh, you know, violent action called for in order to remove such people because we just can't get them out any other way. But, um, but when it comes to issues like slavery or, you know, civil law, you know, culture war issues, it's a failure on our part when, you know, when diplomacy fails, that's when war, right? That's when violence comes out. It's when Sun Tzu's works uh, become important. So that's what I see. I see that as all an inevitable cycle of, of how human beings operate. There, it doesn't matter whether I want it to be that way, whether you want it to be that way. It just is that way. Um, we are not yet evolved enough as, as we see evolution for rational beings as, like ourselves. Uh, we potentially can be rational. And we can see how it's possible that, you know, communication and civil action and things like that could result in change. And most of the time it does, by the way. It's just slow. It's slower than, you know, sometimes we would like it to be. But it doesn't mean nothing's happening. A common misconception, especially among young people, I sure as hell had it, right? Um, I mean, I was in a whole fervent daze about Scientology when I was a young person, and it was nothing was ever good enough or fast enough. Um, you know, so I understand that headspace, but, you know, change is slow, especially in, in, in groups and groups and groups of people, right? So is violent action acceptable to bring about change for the good of humanity? I mean, theoretically, but... You know, there was an awful, let me ask you this, you know, there was an awful lot of violence uh, committed in the name of uh, the good of humanity during the summer of 2020. So, was that violence rational? Was that violence, those riots in response to the whole, you know, uh, killing in Minnesota and the COVID and the cultural, you know, insanity that was going on in the U.S. at the time, which is carried on to a great degree still, was that violence of the summer 2020 acceptable? Hell no, it wasn't. They were looting stores. They were breaking things apart. They were, it was social unrest, you know, from coast to coast. And I sat here at this same microphone at that time saying this is wrong. What's going on here isn't good. It's not right. But if you listen to the people who were carrying out the violence, who were carrying out the riots, they were the most self-righteous, self-justified, morally untouchable people 
Black Lives Matter, Antifa, whole lot of people, whole lot of people got on board that crazy train. That's how I look at it, right, uh, in response to that whole thing. But they felt incredibly justified and were asking that exact same question of me at that time. This is all justified. Why aren't you on board with this? This is socially, this is how we have to make change happen. It's through violence. Don't you get it? They won't listen otherwise. Nothing's going to change otherwise. Oh, yeah? So was there a lot of positive change after all those riots? I don't see it. So that's kind of my answer to that. Um, okay. Leslie Bishop asks, uh, Chris, what was the name of the disorder that you suspect LRH had some kind of temporal? I'd love to see that subject discussed more. Um, okay, good. Um, you will. Um, you will. Very, very soon, actually. Um, you're talking about temporal lobe epilepsy, T-L-E. And this is something that uh, I did a podcast years ago with uh, Yuval Leor. And um, we did do another one. And I need to get it out to y'all. It's going to be a podcast. It's going to be on the Speaking of Cults podcast. So uh, you will see more on that soon. Um, Andy Fabulous asks, are there clashes between Sea Org members and public Scientologists? Yes, all the time. Um, there are now not, not necessarily violent clashes in terms of fisticuffs, but uh, there are clashes. Yeah, public get all kinds of uppity sometimes about things like they, some public don't want their kids recruited for the Sea Org or they don't want to pay for this new thing or they don't want to have the visited, you know, people knocking on their door at 10 o'clock at night trying to, you know, get them on service or whatever. They, yeah, they get, they get pissed at Sea Org members, uh, you know, sure, that happens. doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, with, uh, what's the second question you asked here? Is there a clash? Who are moving up the scale? Yeah, same question. Yeah. Okay, actually, wow, we caught up. Okay, good. All right, we went over a bit. Yep, we did. And uh, caught up on everything. Thank you very much, everybody. I think I'm going to wrap up right now. Um, so let me go ahead and close this off. Um, yes. Okay, good. <laughs> okay, guys. Um, so thank you very much for your support. Thank you very much for your viewership. I know that uh, I'm not for everybody, and that's okay with me. I honestly don't care. I'm not. That, that's okay with me, right? I support, I appreciate rather the support that you all are giving me to do what I do here. Um, I very much appreciate the ability to help anybody out there that I can. Um, and that's what this channel gives me uh, as far as a, con a connection with you guys. And to me, that's really at the end of the day what, what, what matters about all of this. So again, if you want to contact me about consultation or whatever, you can do that. I also have signed copies of my book. I only have a couple more of these. A couple of you took me up on that offer recently. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it was very nice of you. I do have a couple more copies here. If you want a signed copy of my book, you can contact me by email and we can negotiate uh, pricing and all that so I can get it uh, shipped out to you. Uh, and let's see, anything else? Uh, no. Just uh, think. It's not illegal yet. <laughs> All right, guys. Bye-bye.